welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Do you have a prized possession? Perhaps something whose meaning is connected more with who gave it to you than how valuable the item is. Dr. Sinclair Ferguson, Chancellor's Professor of Systematic Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary, brings us this sermon entitled, How Jesus Thinks About Us which covers John chapter 17, verses 20 to 26. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. And so we have the great privilege of having Dr. Sinclair Ferguson with us today. And, and I, I don't know about you all. Some of you are very familiar. Perhaps others of you are not, but his books have been Greatly influential in, in my life, his teaching, his preaching as well. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Uh, he's a native of Scotland and earned his PhD at the University of Aberdeen. He was a minister of two churches in Scotland before he came to the States and served for many years as the uh, senior pastor minister of First Presbyterian Church in Columbia, South Carolina. And um, in addition, for many years, he was professor of systematic theology at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia and at Redeemer Seminary in Dallas. Now he serves as the um, Ligonier Ministries Teaching Fellow and the Chancellor's Professor of Systematic Theology at Reformed Theological Seminary. And currently, for the last decade, he has been serving as the Honorary Evening Preacher at St. Peter's Free Church of Scotland uh, there in Dundee. And I'm not sure who our brother is who is the pastor of that church, but to have Dr. Ferguson preaching on Sunday evenings, uh, man, wow, if that were here at Perimeter, I'd be showing up every Sunday night saying, teach me, brother. All right. Uh, he, he and his wife, Dorothy, have been blessed with three sons and a daughter and 11 grandchildren. So, so great. So as Dr. Ferguson comes, I'm going to pray for him. Uh, we, we have such a, uh, a treat in store for us as we get to hear the word taught from him this morning. Father, thank you for for Dr. Ferguson, we pray your blessings over him, pray that you would anoint him. Even as we prayed a moment ago, we pray again, oh God, would you, would you give us hearts that are soft, receptive, open our eyes, give us ears to hear. Lord, what, a, what a wonderful passage we're looking at. Would you use it powerfully in these minutes ahead unto your glory and for our good, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Would you welcome Amen. Dr. Ferguson? Thank you. Almost my wife's last words to me when I left home in Scotland was, you're going back to the United States, don't let it go to your head, where people applaud you before you have said anything, um, and where there are these uh, super kind introductions that make you uh, feel at the end, this would be a great time to die. <laughs> and, and, uh, and have these nice things said about you. But actually what they make you feel is, can I really be that old? <laughs> so it's a delight to be with you. I'm very grateful for uh, these words of welcome, which have been personal um, as well as public. And I want us to turn in our Bibles in whatever form they are to this 17th chapter of John's Gospel. And the passage that we're going to look at is there on the screen. It's the third section of a triad 
of elements in the prayer of our Lord Jesus on the evening of His crucifixion. And this is the third section. Father, he prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. He's been praying for the 11 apostles who have been left in the room. Judas has just left to betray him, and now he's praying for others. I'm praying for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Well, as we turn to this passage, let's pray our prayer of illumination together. Father, you give us the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Come down, we pray, and feed your people who are gathered and who hunger and thirst for your Word. Amen. Let me begin by asking you this question. What does it feel like to be asked the question, what does Jesus Christ think about you? What does Jesus Christ think about you? My guess is that there are, there are two very common but very different responses to that. One is the response that is probably more instinctive to somebody who isn't really a Christian, and that response is to think in terms in a kind of horizontal way that, um, you know, apparently 90% of people think that they are better than average drivers of their automobiles, that I am as good as the next man, so I have a kind of entitlement for Jesus to think well about me. But there's usually something about that response that is very defensive. At home in Scotland, when a politician doesn't like a question they've been asked, this, the verbal signal of their distaste for it is that the first word out of their mouth is, look. <laughs> and they don't realize they're giving this signal that somewhere or another this question has penetrated somewhere they are not willing for the other person to go. And I think that is often true of Christians. The very name of Jesus is a kind of threat to them. They haven't reached the standards, 
but they defend themselves because they have a right not only to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, but they have a right to heaven. And it's such an indication that they haven't really begun to understand the gospel. But then there is a response that I think many Christians make, which is to feel guilty, to feel the obverse of that self-justification, and to sense that I have failed him so badly. And so the question can have a paralyzing effect on me, can make me turn into myself, feel my unworthiness, paralyze my Christian witness, and also begin to make me think of Jesus in a darker way than I should really think of Him. That is not the question I want to ask. The question I want to ask sounds like it, but it's very different from it. It's not what does Jesus think about me, it's how does Jesus think about me? How does Jesus think about me? And that's why I want to turn to this section of this great prayer of Jesus in John 17, uh, within a matter of hours of His arrest and then His trial and eventually the next day His crucifixion. And He's gathered the apostles together with Him in the upper room. There's a section that begins at the beginning of chapter 13 where He washes His disciples' feet. He sees Judas leave the room to betray Him. He gives teaching and there's dialogue with the apostles as they ask Him what He means. And the whole section ends by them overhearing the longest prayer in the New Testament in which they have access to Jesus' fellowship with His Father. Many of you know this prayer has often been described as Jesus' high priestly prayer. It's not because the word priest is used in the passage, it's because the prayer itself seems to be modeled on the consecration of the high priest for his ministry on the great day of atonement. And when you look back to the regulations that governed the high priest's ministry, this was the one day of the year he went into the nearest presence of God, the holiest place of all, the place in the temple where only one man once a year was permitted to enter into the place where, in a sense, they believed God's very heart dwelt towards His people and to make a sacrifice for their sins. And as He consecrated Himself, He went through a ritual that the Old Testament tells us was like a series of concentric circles. First of all, He consecrated Himself to the Lord, and He made a sacrifice for Himself. And then He interceded for His fellow priests and for His own family. And then the third of these circles was when as high priest he represented all of God's people and gathered all of God's people, as it were, into his arms. As you remember, when he wore his priestly robes, he had the names of the tribes in jewels on his breastplate and the names of the tribes on the shoulders such a representation of His ministry to all the people. And we see exactly the same pattern in this passage. 
First of all, as Jesus comes to His Father in the opening four or five verses, He's praying about Himself. Father, He says, I've finished the work You gave me to do. Now restore to me the glory I had with You before the foundation of the world. And then He broadens that prayer in the longest section from verse 6 right through to verse 19, and He embraces and they overhear Him praying for them. He embraces these eleven apostles who are left, prays that the Father will keep them and that the Father will use them. And then He comes to the third concentric circle, and He embraces in His arms and in His prayer those He knows will come to believe in Him in the future. Every single believer who will become a Christian in the entirety of Christian history, and the loving Savior brings them in His arms and in His prayer to His Father, and He prays for them. And He tells the apostles as they overhear that prayer, and He tells us as we now have this testimony and record of this prayer, how He thinks about us. This is how Jesus thinks about you. This is Jesus at the most intense moment of His human emotion in the whole of His life and ministry. And He chooses these words to describe you. I don't know if this is your experience. I left home when I was 17, went off 143 miles to university, believing I was going to the edge of the planet. It was so far away. Um, and it never crossed my mind that my parents would talk about me. It never crossed my mind that they would actually think about me. It never crossed my mind how they would think about me. And I've often thought in years of pastoral ministry, I believe I've met many Christians whose disposition to the Lord Jesus is almost identical to what I thought about my parents, that now I was gone and they would get on with their life. And it is a question, isn't it? It's, it's a pretty penetrating question, although it's a very simple question. Has it ever crossed your mind to ask the question, how does Jesus think about me? Of course you've asked the question, what does Jesus think about you? I mean, you can't have been in a Christian church without preachers making sure you have thought about that question and touched some shame and guilt and failure and urged you to serve Christ better, and it's all appropriate. You know, you can live the Christian life for many years, and it never crosses your mind to ask the question, does Jesus think about me at all? If He thinks about me, how does He think about me? And what is so marvelous about this passage at the end of Jesus' high priestly prayer, in these few verses, there is encapsulated for us the way in which the Lord Jesus thinks about us. Sometimes in the past, this prayer has been described as a transcript of Jesus' ongoing priestly ministry in heaven. He is, after all, the same today as He was yesterday. Remember that great verse in Hebrews 13? 
I kind of suspect many Christians think that those words, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, is just like a preacher's long way of saying he's eternal, but it's not. It's a way of saying for the author of Hebrews, what Jesus is like today in my today is that He is exactly the same as He was in what to me was yesterday, in what the author of Hebrews calls the days of His flesh. So, when we read the transcript of this prayer of Jesus, praying for those who come to trust in Him, we can be absolutely sure that if this is what He was like in our yesterday, 2,000 years ago, He is the same today. His heart towards us has not changed. And I think it's maybe significant that this comes at the end of the longest prayer in the New Testament, and it comes at the end of this very intimate moment when Jesus is with His disciples, when if we were able to catechize Jesus and say, Jesus, what is the most important way Jesus thinks about me? His answer would be in terms of these verses. And I want us to notice only two things about them. I think, to be honest, I mean more than two things, but there are two big things I want us to notice about them, although there are many more things to learn. The first is the answer to the question, how does Jesus describe me? Now, you notice in these verses, He basically describes me in two ways. He says, I'm praying for those who will come to believe in me through their word, that is, through the word of the apostles. That's how He thinks about us, as those who have come to believe in Him through the word of the apostles. Now, my eyesight isn't what it used to be, and I can't see the faces right at the back of the room, but nobody in this room looks old enough to have heard an apostle preach certainly not one of these apostles. But he's not speaking about their preaching, is he? He's speaking about their word. So, what is he talking about here? Those who come to believe in me through their word. And actually, he understands, if you think about it, at the end of the day, nobody comes to believe in Jesus except through their word. We have no other access to who Jesus is and what Jesus was like apart from their Word. And it's interesting, if you're familiar with these chapters, Jesus has already explained to them, not quite in so many words, but He's explained to them exactly what He means by this. He's said to them, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, apostles, one of the things He will do is He will remind you of everything that I've said. And then he says, when he comes, he will also lead you into all truth. Now, I know many Christians take that very personally. He's promised me he will lead me into all truth. There is a secondary sense in which that may be true, but you were not in that room. He wasn't talking about you. He was talking about leading these apostles into the truth about him. And then he prays, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will show you the things to come. All that I've taught the real truth about me, and the things that are to come. What does that sound as though it's a description of? It's a description of the right-hand side of your Bible. It's a description of the New Testament. 
everything that Jesus taught in the Gospels and a few things elsewhere, the truth about Jesus that is expounded in the epistles and recorded in the Acts of the Apostles, and the things that are to come <clears throat> that are in some of the letters and in the book of Revelation, however you interpret the book of Revelation. And when you think about it, as Jesus prays for those who will come to believe in Him through their Word, it, it surely is something that Christians ought to stop and think about, the amazing providence of God that has drawn a line from this room with 11 men left with Jesus all the way, let's say, today to Atlanta, Georgia. This prayer is being fulfilled even as I speak to you. This Word has made its way from this little room through Jerusalem into the land, beyond the land to Samaria, to the ends of the earth, which I hate to say this because it's so humbling for you, from Jesus' point of view is probably Atlanta, Georgia. <laughs> for us, it's the center of the earth. Have you any idea how complicated that has been? There isn't a website in the world that traces your ancestry that could begin to handle the sheer complexity of the way this word of the apostles has eventually come to your doorstep, come to your life, confronted you in the life of a Christian who at first irritated you, and then through their lives you were maybe drawn to wonder what it was that made them so different, what made them tick, and you eventually discovered it was the things that Jesus had said. It was the truth about Jesus. It was the sure knowledge of His kingdom coming to consummation in the future. And it's a wonderful thing to do. It's a great thing to do at the beginning of a new year, actually, to reflect on the amazing providences of God in our lives that, first of all, led us to the truth as it is in Jesus and to trust Him and to love Him and to think that's how He, that's how he thought about us then and that's how He's been thinking about us now. I mean, I think about myself, a, a little boy meeting a Sunday school teacher who encouraged him to read the Bible for himself and reading the Bible from the age of nine right through to the age of 14. And, and I suppose as a little Pharisee thinking that's what it means to be a Christian and then seeing what this looked like in the lives of those to whom the gospel had come and transformed and realized that I was like the people in John's gospel to whom Jesus says, you search the Scriptures because you think that's the way to eternal life, but you won't come to me to find life. And to think that all through the centuries, one person to another person to another person, it's as though this has been handed on until it was handed on to the man whose name, interestingly, was Jimmy Stewart who turned me to the Scriptures. And you've got that story too if you're a Christian. And Jesus has been thinking about you this way from the very beginning. We're those who believe in Him through the Word He gave to the apostles by the Spirit. But in a way, that, that's not quite the center. At the center lies something that drives that description. 
and it's the wonderful way in which he describes us and these apostles several times in this passage. From Jesus' point of view, if I can put it this way, the way Jesus loves to think about you is you are someone his Father has given to him. If you know John's gospel, that's language that's used in chapter 6. It's language that reappears in the Good Shepherd passage in John chapter 10. But the fascinating thing is that in, in this prayer where one can sense Jesus' emotions have been expanded to their maximum, it occurs again and again and again. He uses it in verse 2. You're going to give eternal life to all whom you have given to me. Verse 6, you are the, they are the people you gave me out of the world. Again in verse 6, yours they were and you gave them to me. And again in verse 7, you've given them to me. And again in verse 9, those whom you have given me. And again in verse 11, those you have given me. And again in verse 12, those you have given me. And again in verse 24, those you have given me. Don't you hope, those of you who think about dying, that when you are dying in the last days or hours of your life and the people you love most surround you, that you will be able to express, and maybe you feel you won't be able to do it, to be able to express in the best possible vocabulary that will linger with them forever how much they mean to you. And this for Jesus this is the vocabulary that describes how much you mean to Him if you're a Christian believer. What makes you valuable to Him is not how valuable you are, but the fact that you have been given value to Him because His Father gave you to Him. And in giving you to Him, said my son, the arrangement is that as I give him, as I give her to you, you have promised that you will die for them, that you will rise for them, that you will send your spirit to them, that you will transform them, that you will keep them, and you will bring them finally to glory. You ever think about yourself that way? I don't know about you, but I love the house we live in, but I could live in another house. For most of it, it's pretty incidental. It makes a difference if it's the house your parents gave to you. I think about the things that I value most. In most cases, it's not because they have much actual value. The reason I value them is because of the person who gave them to me. I think actually the most valuable thing I possess is a copy of the Geneva Bible. It's, it's more than 400 years old, and it's probably worth money, but that's not why I value it. I value it because the widow of one of my elders, one of my friends in one of the churches I served in Scotland after he died, gave me his Geneva Bible. Louis would like you to have that, and I value it because Louis gave it to me. I've actually kept something else that is of, uh, is of no value whatsoever, and I mean that seriously. 
I could actually have it in my hip pocket, although I don't. I sometimes lose it because it's so small. But the reason I keep it is because it was given to me by a member of the royal family. Now, you might be given something by the president, and it would depend on who was the president, whether you valued it or not. I understand, I understand the element of the united psyche of the people of America. Um, but I value this not because it's of any value, but because of the dignity, the royalty of the person who gave it to me, and because of the occasion. That's the atmosphere in which Jesus is praying. He's saying, Father, I value them because you gave them to me. If you were to, if you were to say to Jesus, Jesus, what's the best way you think about me? Then his answer is, I think about you as somebody my Father gave to me. And that's why I love you. That's why I died for you. That's why I keep you, because my Father gave you to me. Have you any… You can almost hear Him saying to you, have you any idea how much you mean to me? Yes, at some time think about what does He think about the way I'm living the Christian life, but do not ever think about the answer to that question without first of all asking the question, Lord Jesus, how do you think about me? And hearing him say, my child, I think about you as someone my father has given to me. And so, you are mine, and I will value you forever. And you need to know that. And you need to know I'm the same today as I was yesterday. So, that's the answer to the first part of our question, how is it that the Lord Jesus describes us? But there's another part to this question I want to answer about the way Jesus thinks about us, and that is, what does the Lord Jesus want for us? He's praying for us, and He expresses Himself here in verse 20 and again in verse 24 to tell His Father what He wants for us. And there are there are basically two things He wants. First of all, He wants us in the here and now to be one. Now, He's not, he's not praying as people used to think last century. He's not praying the church will have one, like, worldwide organization. The church could have one worldwide organization and its members all be at loggerheads with each other. I mean, you could belong to this church and be at loggerheads with the people who are sitting behind you, or even with the woman who is sitting beside you. What he's praying for is something different, and he explains what he's praying for. He's praying for a unity of fellowship that is the result of him giving to his people the glory that his Father gave to him. Now, I don't know about you, but in some ways I find that one of the strangest things that Jesus ever said, because the rest of the Bible makes it clear that God shares His glory with none other. So, what is Jesus talking about here? Well, if you reflect on this passage, one of the things you'll notice is there's a kind of, there's a kind of parallel that runs through this passage of 
the glory of the Father being given to the Son, the glory of the Son being given to the apostles, the glory of Christ then coming to us, and the parallel with that is the love that the Father has shown to His Son, the love that the Son has shown to the apostles, and the love that the Son has shown to all who believe in Him through their testimony. It's not the glory of His eternal splendor. It's the glory of Him basking. I mean basking in His love. And the interesting thing is that as Jesus prays about this, He's already in this upper room discourse given the apostles an indication of how this works. The way it works is that the love that the Father shows to His Son, and He's thinking about Himself during the course of His ministry, the way in which Jesus has experienced that is because the Holy Spirit has poured out upon Him a sense of His Father's love for Him. And the Holy Spirit has poured out on the apostles a sense of the Lord Jesus' love for them. And what Jesus is praying here is that the same will happen to everyone whom the Father has given to Him. Remember how Paul puts it in Romans chapter 5? He says, the love of God for us has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Actually, he's answering the question, how can we be sure of the glory that is yet to come? Being justified by faith, we have peace with God, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory that is yet to come. That's all well and good, but how can I be sure of it in the here and now? Because in the here and now, it's as though God has punctured a hole in heaven and in the Holy Spirit poured out into our lives. He has come, as it were, drenching us in a sense of the love that God the Father has for us. And that's what Jesus wants for the church, that the glory of the church is the experience of its members basking in the love of God the Father in Jesus Christ for them through the ministry of the Holy Spirit given to them. And Jesus has said earlier on in chapter 14, when He goes back to the Father, He's going to say to the Father, Father, give them the Holy Spirit you gave me. I find this one of the most thrilling things in Jesus' teaching. I'd like I'd like to put it this way, you know, I, I don't know how many people are in this room, maybe there are a couple of thousand people in this room, and if we were all Christians, I'm not assuming we are, but if we were all Christians, every single one of us would be indwelt by the Holy Spirit, wouldn't we? So are there 2,000 Holy Spirits? Well, no. Well, maybe it works this way. The Lord Jesus was indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, so maybe there are two Holy Spirits. Well, no. Well, what does that shut us into? It shuts us into this, that every single man and woman, teenager, boy and girl in this room who is trusted in Jesus Christ is indwelt by one and the same, the identical Holy Spirit who for 33 years superintended the life of the Lord Jesus. And what He has done in coming into our hearts is to shed abroad in our hearts the love of the Heavenly Father that was manifested in the sacrifice of His 
beloved son. And you know, in that simple principle, there is the cure-all for many of the problems that arise in the Christian church because of our difficulties with one another. Because what we see is what makes us different from each other, and we entirely lose sight of what we have in common, that each of us is indwelt by the Holy Spirit who pours into the hearts of Christians the love of the Lord Jesus. Can I ask you, when did, when did you last think about the Christian that you see 20 yards away when you come to church on Sunday, and there's something in you that makes you want to turn around and go in the opposite direction? Because you know you're going to be there for the next half hour, because they're maybe going to complain about something in the church, or they want to tell you about something they've done, or you just find them difficult. Or because they have a Scottish accent and you can't understand a word they say. It could be that. I know it could be that. But, you know, when you think about a brother or sister who is indwelt by the Spirit of the Lord Jesus, who is someone the Father has given to His Son, and when that begins to permeate the life of a church, it turns a church into a rather wonderful family and gives that church an amazing testimony in this world. And that's actually what Jesus is ultimately praying about. In a sense, He's answering our question, Lord, how are we going to evangelize the non-Christian world? And it fascinates me that there's nothing in the New Testament that suggests we should go and ask non-Christians questions that will stimulate them to speak to us about what the Christian faith is. It's assumed in the New Testament that what they see in us as a church family will make them ask questions that say, maybe in not so many words, what is it that you've got that seems so like what life should be that we cannot find anywhere? And that's what he's praying for. In the here and now, that the Spirit will so transform these communities of the Lord Jesus Christ that there will be such a sense of their unity produced by a common delight in the marvels of His love shed abroad in our hearts that it will actually be said about us, do you see these Christians in perimeter church or wherever church, even in Scotland? Have you noticed how they love one another. We don't find that anywhere else in the world. But he doesn't stop there, does he? He goes on to say, Father, this is ultimately what I want. I want them to be one in the here and now, but I want them to be with me in the there and then to see my glory. And this is a very interesting prayer. This is a prayer that's recorded only in John's Gospel. And it's very interesting that within an hour or at most two, Jesus will pray a very different prayer. And that different prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane is recorded in the, the other three Gospels, but this prayer isn't recorded in them. And yet, when you've got these four Gospels, you understand that this prayer explains that prayer, and that prayer explains this prayer. He is able to say to His Father, Father, this is what I want because in an hour or so, he's going to go to his father and say, Father, this is what I don't want. I do not want for a moment to feel that I have been abandoned by you. 
I cannot want to have to say, my God, why have you forsaken me? But it's because he was willing to do what he did not want to do, that he's able to go to his father and say to his father, Father, this is what I want. I want them to be with me, to behold my glory. I've only a minute or so left, so hold your breath, because I want to tell you seven reasons why he wants this. And it won't take me, I think, any more than a minute. He wants you to be there because He wants you to see His glory because He knows you've seen His humiliation. You've seen His humiliation history. You've maybe seen His humiliation in the office in which you work. And He wants you to see His glory. He wants you to see His glory, secondly, because He wants you to see who He really is. He wants you to see His glory, thirdly, because He wants you to see how much His Father loves Him who would give Him such glory. He wants you to see His glory, fourthly, because He wants you to know how much His Father loves you. He wants you to see His glory, fifthly, because He wants you to know how much you have meant to Him. He wants you to know and see His glory because He wants you to know that at the end of the day, it will all have been worth it. And He wants you to be there to see His glory because He wants you, which is why He died for you. And when we begin to think about ourselves that way, then begins a transformation in the way in which we live the Christian life. And we're able to say with the Apostle Paul, who called himself the chief of sinners, the amazing thing is this, the Son of God loved me because His Father gave me to Him, and that's why He died for me on the cross. And you know, if I were not a Christian, I think hearing that would make me feel, Lord, there is nothing more in the world that I think I need than Jesus Christ. And if I were a Christian, I would think there is nothing I need in this world that Jesus Christ will give to me. So, may that be true for us as individuals, as families, and as a church family this year. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank You that although You are exalted at the right hand of the Father and worshipped by angels and archangels and cherubim and seraphim, and although this prayer that You made for Yourself has been answered, that You would be glorified in the presence of holy angels with the glory that You had with Your Father from before the creation of the world. We thank You that You are the same today as You were yesterday, and that when we see You face to face, we will not see You that You love us more then than You love us now, but only see how much You did love us now that we did not realize until then. Bathe us, we pray, in a sense of Your love for us. Help us to see ourselves through Your eyes to bask in the love of God shed abroad in our hearts 
by the Holy Spirit that you have given to everyone who believes in you. And this we pray in your name. Amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.